Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. If there was ever a showdown at OK Corral in the Scripture, it's here in 1 Kings 19. The people of Israel have added to their allegiance to God their allegiance to some of their neighbor's idols. In particular, one false idol by the name of Baal. God has had enough. And he calls the people together at Mount Carmel and he challenges the Israelite king Ahab to bring with him 450 prophets of Baal for a showdown. Now, Elijah, his prophet, sets the terms of the engagement. We will build two altars and two different sacrifices. I will call upon Jehovah God. You and your 450 prophets will call upon Baal. And whichever God responds to consume the sacrifice, he is Lord over all. Without going into all the drama, and trust me, it is a great drama if you have not read the story. Nothing happens with Baal. And everything happens when Elijah calls upon Jehovah. Fire falls from heaven consuming the sacrifice and Jehovah's name and his reputation are reestablished as supreme. And Elijah orders all of the 450 prophets of Baal to be seized and he personally seized to their deaths. It is a tremendous moment in Elijah's life. And it is on the heels of that that we read 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything. Everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. At once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and then he lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time, and he touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And so he got up, and he ate, and he drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the Mount of God. There he went into a cave, and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Love this. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. 
And a voice said to him, what, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous to the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one that's left. And now they're trying to kill me too. In verse 15, the Lord says to him, go back the way that you came. And he gives him some instructions about who to anoint as a king and what to expect when that happens. And then we come to verse 18. I want you to know, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah finds out you are not alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Some of us weary from the battle. Just honest. Maybe it's been, to be honest, more than we can handle. We're sometimes afraid to say that, Father, like you've confused our limits with somebody else's. And we want to run away and hide. There are some of my brothers and sisters, God, you've brought here this morning, particularly who are weary. I'm asking you, please, speak to them. Refresh them. Restore them. Refire them. Let them know they are not alone. Father, we know we're not the only ones who struggle with this. We lift up Calvary Chapel this morning and ask you to please bless them as they too are sharing in the supper and hearing from your word and singing praises to you. Father, you know who among them are your disciples like you know who among us are your disciples. And we ask that you strengthen your church the world over. And particularly here this morning, would you please take this message, this sack lunch of a message, and break it as you did on the seashore so many thousands of years ago to feed thousands. Father, we need you to feed hundreds this morning, please. Help us to leave here nourished, refreshed, refilled, but more than anything else, looking a little bit more like Christ than when we came in. And we ask us humbly in the name of Jesus and all the church said, amen. Without me sharing a single point from the text that we just read together, I know some of you are blessed to know that you're not the only one who wants to run away. If Elijah the prophet would want to run away at times, then maybe, just maybe, you're not so pathetically weak after all. Just weak. Maybe you're not so cowardly after all. Just tired. And if that describes you, then on behalf of God, can I remind you, God rested. God rested. And if some of you are thinking, God did what? Well, it's a funny thing. We're involved in a series of lessons that I'm calling God did what? And in it, we're examining some of the wild things recorded in Scripture for us that God does. Last week, we looked at some of the bizarre ways in which God spoke. And if you're just getting acquainted with the Bible, it's kind of your first to read through this book seriously. It's crazy that he spoke through a bush. It's crazy that he spoke through a burrow or a donkey. But the Bible says he did. And I think it's equally crazy to think that the all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent God rested. How in the world is that possible? Why in the world is that possible? Was he fatigued? Was he just worn to a frazzle? Did he really need a rest? Well, let me say this. To be honest, the scripture doesn't say why. But stay with me for the rest of this morning and I think you'll see that it doesn't have to. 
Because the scripture is clear that before he comments on the subject of rest or issues a command for us to rest, listen to me, God rested. After six days of creating the world, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 says this, On the seventh day he rested from his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because he rested from his work. From creating all that he had done. Now it's interesting, for six days God is busy. Now I don't know how busy busy is when you're God and you're creating all of the world, but I've got to assume that's pretty busy. And he's busy creating, but then he calls what he does next on the seventh day rest. And it's good. No, but it's actually better than that because he calls this particular day of all the days holy. Now, the Sabbath, which interestingly enough, this day is given its own name, begins on Friday afternoon when the sun sets. And it runs through sunset on Saturday because that's the way that the Hebrew people counted their days. We kind of do that reverse. We, we see our days as morning and then it leads into night. They saw their days as evening that leads into morning. And that's because their God ordered his days that way. And so they therefore ordered their days. Interestingly enough, as we read in the creation stories, we did four or five weeks ago, that he speaks and there was light and then it was evening and morning and the first day. And then he speaks again and another fantastic part of creation comes into being. Day one, day two, day three, day six. And after every one of those days, he says it's good. And it ends with there was evening and morning, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. And then he says on the seventh day, he rested. I think the significance of the Sabbath is not so much when it occurs but what it's for. If you miss anything, it's just this simple. Sabbath is for rest. Now, that is one four-letter word I like. Friday is usually the sportsman's day of rest. Friday is usually our Sabbath. The other six days, I am normally hard at it. For the last 10 years, Gail and I have made it our aim to set aside a day in which we rest from our work, where we rest from our creating, where we rest from organizing. We try our best because of what we've seen in God to cease from doing life and just be. I got to tell you, this last Friday, I was whipped, wiped out. And so I spent the first few hours of the morning just in worship and in quiet. I found a great view to park myself at. I put on some Mark Schultz, and I did what Psalms 46.10 said, Be still and know that I am God. And I was doing that, and a car pulled up beside me and said, Excuse me, what are you doing? Are you stuck? (laughs) I said, No, I'm having my quiet time. And he said, Well, could you have it on somebody else's property? I can assure you, Satan does not like for us to try to rest in God. He doesn't. And neither will he you. We um, didn't do much that day. We don't normally on our day of rest. Went to Doss, had some great food. Did y'all know there's a great restaurant in Doss? If you didn't, you got to go. They have an actual chef in the little town of Doss. And I would encourage you to have the BLT or the um, 
free bird sandwich was that it was phenomenal go and you'll see you will not be disappointed now i'm not going to refund your money all right but we went to Dawes, had lunch i took a nap we picked up a few rocks along the side of the road because Gail's doing some work in the backyard with them again we trespassed on someone else's property I got to tell you, there was a time in my life when I didn't feel like I had time to Sabbath. When I could rest. Not so much because of my list of things to do, but because of what my peers would think. Maybe this will help illustrate how I felt. I heard about a preacher who had just returned to the office after taking a day off. He ran into a member of the church and the man said with an edge to his voice, Where were you yesterday? The preacher said, I tried to take a day off and just relax. He said, well, I try to get a hold of you at your house. I try to get a hold of you at the office. You wouldn't even answer your phone. He said, no, I, I, I took the phone off the hook. I was trying to get a day off. The man said, well, the devil doesn't take a day off. To which the preacher said, you're right. And if I didn't take a day off, I'd be just like you. I mean, him. <laughs> For many years of my life as a preacher... It was very hard for me to take a full day off. Not so much because my list of things to do was so long, because of the pressure from it, but from the pressure literally of my friends, my peers. In America, it is just cool to be busy. Actually, in America, it's almost required. You've heard us. Hey, sportsman, what have you been up to? Here's what I'm supposed to. Oh, busy. Covered up. Man, I don't have time much to even think. Isn't that our standard response? It's almost as if we wear busyness as a badge of honor in America. And even in the church. Because we live in a culture that confuses, I think, busyness with worthiness. Church, the culture is not where I'm going to turn and try to figure out what is best for my life. I'm going to turn to the author of life. And can I tell you this? The author of life rested. Rested. The truth is, not only does the church need some rest, but our culture desperately needs to see a people who model that. Have you ever had an incredibly full day with your kids? Been at the river, grandma's house, maybe even to Six Flags. And I mean, you've had the greatest of days. You have gone, you have done I mean, you've done it up big. You've eaten big. You've played big. It's been a phenomenal day. Then all of a sudden, coming out of your kid's mouth is this whininess and complaints about two, maybe three in the afternoon. They're fussy. They're out of sorts. And you suggest they need to go lay down and take a nap. And the standard answer, I don't need a nap. But the thing that you know they need is some rest. The thing you know you need is for them to get some rest. Do you know anybody who's in need of a nap? Now, no elbows allowed here, but you can raise your hand. America's in need of a nap. Amen. The church is in need of leading them to a nap. Now, I know that sounds a little bit childish, so let me change words here to rest. To rest. We've been living big. Hard and fast for long stretches of time. And it's amazing how much there seems to be a constant flow of criticism and negativism and bitterness and complaining coming out of our mouths. Church, we need a nap. And so does the rest of the world. 
Did you know this is not just a suggestion from God? It is a command. One of the big ones. One of the commands of God that are eternal. One of the commands of God that are essential, not just for obedience, but for survival in this world. In Exodus chapter 20, God's about to bring the people into the promised land, not to live as slaves as they did in Egypt, but as his prized people. And to ensure that it is truly a life of freedom, he gives them ten principles, ten suggestions. No, you know better. He gives them ten commands, rules for living as his covenant people. And I think this is incredibly significant. Rest is one of them. Before he says, don't you dare kill each other. Before he says, don't you dare steal from each other. Before he says, don't you dare have sex with another man's wife. Before he says, don't you dare tell lies. He says, don't you dare work all the time. Busyness is not godliness, thus saith the Lord. Don't you dare work every day of the week. God commands us, take a day off. Spend it resting, renewing, and remembering me. Now, I want you to do yourself a favor. Please, don't let the word command shut your brain down. Please don't let the word rule shut your brain down because that's just part of our flesh. It just does that. When we hear commands, rules, shoulda, oughtas, eh. I had to laugh at a first grade teacher who, heard, who I heard about this week. She was pointing out the significance of cafeteria rules when she realized she wasn't getting anywhere with the class because as soon as she mentioned rules, the class started moaning and fidgeting. And so she had an idea. She thought she'd start out with asking what kind of rules their parents might have when they go out to a nice restaurant. She thought there'd be some parallels there. And so she asked that question. What are some rules your parents may have before you go to dinner, to a nice dinner at a restaurant? And one second grader slightly raised his hand. He says, don't play with the food. Another young girl raised her hand and says, don't be loud. All the kids got involved except one little boy over in the corner. And she wanted to get him involved. And she said, Billy, do your parents have any rules before you go out to eat? And he said, yes, ma'am. Order something cheap. <laughs> when we think of the word rule... Most often we equate that, with getting less, equate that with less, not more. When we think of rules, often we think of something that inhibits, not frees. And I think we look at the Ten Commandments very often just in that way. Here's some things that God's not going to let us do. Here's some stuff that He's going to limit us in, not free us to do. And that's just wrong. The longer that I live, the grayer that my head gets, I see the truth is just the opposite. God lays out some very basic principles for living in our own land of promise. And if they are followed, they enable us to live in a land, but more so in a life that's filled, not less. A life that's the greatest, not the least. And so with that in mind, listen to commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day 
and he made it holy. Question. You know the commandment. Here's the question. Who is the example? Starts with G, ends with odd. God. God is the example. In six days, he organized, he instructed, he created, he constructed, he sorted, he completed. And he says, that's good. But his week wasn't finished. What made the week complete, what made the week whole was what he did on the seventh day. He took a day of rest. He took a break. He ceased from creating. He ceased from organizing. He ceased from constructing. He ceased from doing. And he spent a day just being. And he said it was good. No, not exactly. He said it was right. No, not quite. He said it's finished. No, that comes later. He said it's holy. It's holy. And God says to those of us who are made in his image, would you just follow my example? Would you just mimic me? Would you please just imitate me? Actually, he says it a little firmer than that. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, I want everyone to know that under the new covenant that we live in, keeping the commandments no longer equates us as righteous as it did under the old. That was the law in a nutshell. Works equaled righteousness then. Now, our faith in Jesus Christ equals righteousness. Let's get that settled. But following these principles that he gave, not just the nation of Israel, but his people now, still the cornerstone of enjoying life full of promise and hope and what Jesus will call rest. Now, these will be the same for you, and I have to remind you of that because Jesus said I had to. Matthew five nineteen. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I really don't care if you guys call me great here, but I really would like to hear that from him. Amen. Not less. So I've got to teach you this. If you truly want to live, if you want to taste life the way it was intended to be lived, go ahead and for six days work hard. But then rest easy. Cease from majoring in doing at least for one day and insist on majoring in being. That is exactly what Elijah needed. When Elijah gets away, when Elijah heads off to find an obscure place to hide from all the plates that are crashing down around him that he's not spinning very well, and especially to hide from one lady who would like to have his head on one of those plates, he doesn't get a lecture from God. He doesn't get reprimanded from God. He gets treated to some food and some sleep. And an audience with God. It's almost as if God said, it is about time you took some time. Elijah had been busy doing prophet's work, hadn't he? He'd been busy standing against the enemies of God. He'd been busy standing up for the name of God and the reputation of God. And the Bible records he was successful in his endeavors. But listen to me clearly. Success wasn't enough to keep him going. Accomplishment wasn't enough to give him courage in the face of a queen who puts a contract on him. Jezebel says, I want the boy dead by tomorrow. Now, I realize that's a threatening statement, but come on. 
He's just got back from facing 450 men who could have put him to death. How could he be worried about a simple threat from a girl? Fatigue. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Whether you're talking about staring down false prophets or taking out a transmission. Whether you're preaching to thousands or teaching a classroom of first graders. Whether you're coaching or mothering or waitressing or studying or trying to do all four at the same time like one woman that I know. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Some cowards complain. Other cowards berate. Some turn to pornography. Others hit their wives. Some wives cut their kids in half with criticism. Fatigue morphs its way into a hundred different expressions. But very few are helpful. As a matter of fact, 99% of them are hurtful. Please, church, please, brothers, please, sister, listen to me clearly. You have physical limits. You have mental limits. You have emotional limits. And they all require a certain amount of downtime to function properly. Please don't get me wrong. God intends for us to work. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned and the fall began, listen to me clearly, Adam was instructed, keep that garden clean. Keep it up. And that's exactly what he and Eve did. They took care of the garden. They worked hard in the garden before sin entered the world. So I think it's clear, work is a good thing. Parents of teenagers say amen. (laughs) Work's a good thing. The preacher said so. No, the Bible actually says so. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 22 says, So I saw there is nothing better for man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. Work's a good thing. And you need to know work isn't just something you get paid for. Can be little league coaching. Can be cooking. Can be cleaning. Can be mowing the yard. It doesn't have to have a dollar value in order for it to be qualified as work. The rabbis defined work as anything that was constructive, anything that involved achieving, anything that involved accomplishing, anything that takes much effort at all. Now, I know that's debatable, and that's why they had all kinds of laws and, and it just kind of wore everybody out while they're teaching about what work was and what wasn't. Just get this. Rest. Rest. Work hard for six days, but then do yourself a favor and the people around you. Get some rest. Now, God takes that so seriously that he had to attach a death threat to it. Exodus 31 and verse 14. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done. But the seventh day is a day of rest, holy to the Lord. And whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, here it is again, must be put to death to death the israelites are to observe the sabbath celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant it will be a sign between me and the israelites forever for in six days the lord made the heavens and the earth here it comes again and on the seventh day he abstained he rested from work wow Can you believe that God actually thinks he has to threaten us with death to get us to rest? (laughs) Sure he does. Because he knows that we are going to be tempted to find our significance in what we do. Instead of whom we are loved by. 
He knows us. He knows that we will think that our busyness is equal with worthiness. Not. So not. As a matter of fact, if the devil can't make you bad, you know what he'll settle for? Just making you busy. How's he doing with you? If the devil will not settle for getting you to be bad, he'll just settle for you being busy. Can I remind you that the commandment to rest comes from a loving father? A father who really, really loves you and wants the best for you. And that's why instead of commanding under this new covenant, he's an inviting God. Can I invite you again? It's kind of a, the end of the parentheses from the start of the scripture reading this morning. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find, say the word with me, rest for your souls. Keep reading with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls here. So it's not just an Old Testament thing, right? No. It's not. God's not commanding. He's inviting you. And hope, Scott, you take him up on it. And Tom and Dustin and Joyce. Hope you take the afternoon off. Do nothing constructive. Sleep, reflect, read, pray, listen to music, listen to the river, listen to your own heartbeat. Write down all the things that you're thankful for. You might think about turning the TV off and the cell phones and the Nintendo and the Wii game and take a slow walk or a slow drive and listen again to what silence is like. Long periods of noisilessness. Wow, do you think that we might benefit from that? Let me tell you this, you were made for it. The world and all of its demands will be there, I guarantee you, when you get back. Now, you can get pharisaical about this, and trust me, there are those in Christianity who have. I haven't mentioned a specific day that you need to Sabbath. I really don't care what day, but I do care that you Sabbath, that you rest, that you have some large chunks of time in which you set aside to just be and not do another thing. You'll meet God in a special way there that you don't any other way. And who knows, you may even hear him whisper. Now, there's two convictions that are going to have to be yours if you'll walk out of here today and just not ditch this one. Here's the first. That your walk in Christ truly is a walk in faith. If that's not a true conviction of yours, you will not listen to this. If your walk in Christ is not a true walk in faith, we can dunk you 20,000 times in that water back there and it really won't matter. Do you believe He is God and you're not? That it depends upon Him, not you. Your Sabbathing is almost like you're giving. 
It's when I give, I trust that he is going to provide more resources for me to get the job done. When I Sabbath, I'm trusting that he is going to provide me with enough resources the other six days of the week. Listen to me. Everybody in this room gets the same size day to live in. 24. Size 24. You get 24 hours just like everybody does. And God Almighty who says, if you seek first the kingdom of God, is going to honor the promise if you truly do that and walk by faith with him. Now, this rest thing really isn't an Old Testament thing. We don't have time to talk about more of this in this lesson, but go home this afternoon. Maybe this is a good thing to do in our community groups. Get out Hebrews chapter 4. And for a couple of chapters, the writer there has a lot to say about two things. Rest. And today when you hear his voice, don't you dare harden your heart as those in the rebellion did. Why? Because there is a rest God wants you to enter into. Now, now it gets better in the future because Revelation chapter 14 to verse 13 says, Oh, baby, blessed are those who die in the Lord because they get to rest from their labors. There's a day coming when we can just quit working altogether. Whatever that work looks like, we cease from it. The Bible says so. And we enter into that rest. Now, he warns in Hebrews chapter 4, there are some who are following God who won't. Because they're not walking by faith. They're not. So, will it matter that God rested? Yeah, it will. If you're truly walking by faith. Conviction number two. If you believe his truth will set you free. Not your truth. His truth. Here's the truth that we've looked at this morning. Correct me if I'm wrong. I need refreshment as much as I need accomplishment. I need refreshment as much as I need accomplishment. I really want to hand to my kids not only a healthy work ethic, but I want to hand my two daughters a healthy rest ethic. How about you, moms and dads? Grandma and Grandpa? Here's why. Because if I hand them a legacy of rest as well as a healthy legacy of work, they may just hear him whisper too. Father, I don't... I don't know how you want to speak this morning. You chose to speak in a whisper to Elijah. And I have to believe that you brought some Elijahs here today to hear this message, whether they're in college and they just are worn to a frazzle because they've not Sabbath, they've not rested, they've not set aside time to just be. And whether they are 85 years old and they just haven't gotten this truth yet and they continue to hand to their children and their grandchildren an out-of-balance life. Father, I pray specifically for the young parents this morning who are raising children, that not one more generation comes to fruition that we have a chance to speak into, who really believes that accomplishment is success. Help us to believe, God, that resting equally is success in your eyes. Please, don't let it be said of this generation that we are being lied to that we were too busy, too busy for you. 
Father, you know the song we're going to sing. You helped select it. And so I'm asking you, would you please, through the power of your Holy Spirit, stir in my brother or sister here as they stand to sing. If they can't sing, it's well with their soul. And they need a brother or sister to pray over them and to speak confession and repentance to so that they can hear the words of grace from. Would you please don't let them stand right there in that place and sing this song. Let them come find one of the shepherds. Come find me and we'll pray with them. And Father, if you brought someone here today who's, who's tired, worn out from doing it themselves, and they're ready like Noah to make Jesus Christ Lord of their lives and to rest in him, his promises, his spirit, his strength, his plan for their life. And Father, would you please give them the courage to come find me and likewise be baptized in the Christ today. Father, thank you. Thank you for speaking Help us, Father, with our obeying. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand, please. And we're sincere in this invitation. If there's any way that we can minister to you today and help you either in your walk with Christ or help you start a walk with Christ, you come find me up the front, some of the shepherds around the room, but please come while we stand and sing.